0: Kia ora, Warehouse Fano, and welcome back to the We're Whāri Whānau podcast. Uh, today I'm joined with R.A. Michael.
1: Kia ora, everyone.
0: Um, and so today we're going to be talking about the soft left um, and a bit about the future of capitalism.
1: Future of capitalism. So,
0: um, yeah. So I guess we should start with just talking a bit about what is the soft left. Awesome. So could you give a bit of an explanation about that?
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Noah. Um... For me, when we talk about left and right, you're talking about the distance to and from revolution. The the right entrenches the status quo, um, and then the left moves to sort of the the social upheaval, transform the way that our society functions and is shaped. Um, And so for me, the soft left deals with the, the sort of idea of how do we alter capitalism? How do we tweak the way that our society is currently structured? To make it better to undo wrongs of the past like to, to decolonize new zealand um to create better social equality um and so yeah it's it's how do we make society better but without taking that massive revolutionary step
0: awesome right so i guess let's we'll start with the definition of the soft lift mm-hmm. Why don't we go into the definition of now of of what you're talking about when it comes to capitalism? Because I know you can obviously branch with every thing in politics into different areas. So where are we focusing on today?
1: I think what we're looking at with capitalism is... Capitalism is obviously the free market, that idea of a system where you consume goods that are given to you by a company rather than provided by the government. Um, And the benefits of how capitalism works are definite in terms of societal innovation it's very clear links with democracy um and so that's why i personally sort of advocate for this idea of a soft left of i hate the idea of dismantling the capitalist system and going to war with it because it has very clear benefits the the way that the soft left sort of looks at it and i i guess if we were looking at figures who are really clear in it at the moment um Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, Anthony Albanese in Australia. And I'd say Bernie Sanders is your American representative, even though in, in the US context he's obviously quite hard left. Um, Sanders represents what would in other countries be a, a soft left policy base. Um, is changing the way that we tax so that our taxation system actually reflects where the money's going. Um, and that's, that's a simple thing. It shouldn't be deemed as strange. Um, society changes. Our tax system was set up when housing and property ownership was the core way of generating and holding your wealth. You held it in housing. And that's still very much so true for middle-class New Zealanders and lower-class families who have the the advantage of owning a house um, and the privilege of owning a house. But the super-rich are no longer holding their funds in housing. So that tax structure, which was designed to focus on homeowners no longer works so a sort of really simple example of what a soft left would do is it would change the tax structure look more at taxing shareholders and that sort of thing so that those who are becoming ultra rich are the ones who are actually paying for society not those who are the middle class hard workers
0: awesome um so obviously then we're looking at left wing quite a controlled. Economy, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously where a lot of people are looking at kind of going. We've we've had this capitalist structure for ages with the free market. Yeah. Um, so, you were saying before that you don't think we we should go to war with capitalism. Yeah. So, but but you kind of agree with the idea that we need to change it. Mm-hmm. So, how would you think would be best for the, the world economy to kind of go that way?
1: I well, I think you have to deal with how did we get to the position we're in now um and this idea that you know if you owned the business because if we sort of accept that business is quite good uh it provides better quality employment than state-owned infrastructure does um it provides usually um although and this is part of where the laws need to change uh usually better products um and responds better to changes in consumer needs quicker um, than state-owned enterprise. But we used to accept that if you were the manager of that corporation, you held more responsibility and therefore deserved to earn more. And that's true to an extent. Um, But it's absolutely not the case that they deserve to earn 350 times as much as the producers of their goods, um, which is where the systems moved. So how we have to look at reigning in that gap between the ultra rich and the the working class um and i i don't think i disagree with the narrative that you can't do that in a way that's healthy for business i think business will always react negatively in the short term to those policies why wouldn't you um because you want to defend your short-term interests um but i think also there's an increasing understanding that unless Government revenue is increased uh, through better taxation systems um, to help us deal with issues like the climate crisis. Unless consumers start earning more relative to the amount of hours they're working and therefore have more disposable income to spend on things, the the structures of the economy that these business people depend on fall to pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's sort of where I view that relationship with businesses is that, yeah, okay, business is kind of going to have to lump it for a while that the policies won't reflect what they want. But in the long term, understand that those policies are better for them.
0: Mm. So, if we talk a bit about, so obviously the title of our, the, the, this episode is the future of capitalism. Mm-hmm. So, we, we've obviously talked a bit about how it kind of started and how our tax structure started yep. with housing. Um, so, why don't we look at a bit of the the long term? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think some of the compromises businesses are going to have to make? Yeah. Um, what do you think some of the compromises that the working class are going to have to make? Yeah. And then. What do you think the solutions
1: are? Yeah. I I mean, one of the really interesting things is that when you talk about the solutions, they're they're things that usually were identified when it all started. Um, You know, we we criticise rightly the fact that economies around the world focus too much on GDP at the moment. Um, They use GDP as the metric of, is society getting better? Which is not true. Productivity can go up and human rights stay stagnant. That's why when countries like China and Russia invest, heavily in military in the military race and spend expansively on tanks and bombs and that sort of stuff their gdp is growing rapidly but that means nothing in relation to how the lower class are doing in those countries um and that's why the us is sort of the the case in point of that of a country where i think it's about a third of the us don't live on a central water grid um and yet it's considered so developed because they have such a high gdp um but The guy who invented GDP criticised it as soon as he invented it. He was like, this is a great metric for our wheat farmers doing well, but in terms of is the average American person doing well, it won't work. Um, Taxation, they knew that taxation was important. It's in the US Constitution that if you want to live in the United States, you have to pay tax. And then now the the far right wages war against taxes as being unconstitutional, which is very strange. And so it's looking at at why are these things falling short and GDP is a really good example because New Zealand and Australia have been world leaders in the delivery of a well-being budget. And a lot of people, you'll hear a lot of people saying that if you call a budget a well-being budget, it's just chucking a name on it. It means nothing. Actually, the way that a well-being budget works, the way that it measures whether it's money, its investment is working, um, and the way that it focuses on... Well being, both of the environment, of the people who it's spent on, of the state in general, um, actually holds us more accountable to making sure that the way that we're investing money as government and really focusing on government is for the betterment of people. Um, And so that idea of well being budget is one that I absolutely advocate that all countries really need to start looking on. I mentioned earlier, tax systems all around the world need extensive um they just need to be brought into the 21st century we need to accept that the way that capitalism was designed worked in the 1950s and 60s doesn't work now um and also when it was designed in the in the 50s and 60s it ignored things like um different ethnic backgrounds uh, immigrant families i mean the, at the time when most of australia's legal system was built Uh, They were under a white Australia policy when Aboriginal people lived isolated from society and immigration was pretty much banned unless you came from Western Europe or the US. Um, And so recognising those changes, analysing those pieces of legislation and bringing them into the 21st century to make a society that's equitable without tearing down our systems of law and government.
0: So instead of getting rid of capitalism, kind of creating a new capitalism.
1: Yeah, exactly. So...
0: Cool. Um, so we're kind of looking at a bit, you've kind of hinted at it a bit, we've talked a bit about government. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously always been debate about how much influence the government has in people's yeah. personal lives and people's money and their mm-hmm. business. Um, do you think that should, like you've already hinted at it a bit, but I feel like, you know, we could probably yeah. unpack it a bit more. Do you think institutions, state institutions should have more or less influence in not only just people's lives, but then also people's business, their money, yeah. Because um, obviously money is controlled by the state. Mm. That, that's how it all works. Um, but there is still big discussion around how much influence they should have. So where do you kind of stand on that front?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the, f- the first thing I'd say to you is, you know, in that question, there's the assumption that how it's supposed to work is how it is working. And I don't think the state is controlling money in the way that it should. Um But I, I, I see nothing wrong with a large state apparatus. Uh, when... We elect a government, we're electing someone to look after the entirety of our environment. That's something that no one corporation or one individual can do. And so the state has to, as a very bare minimum, uh, bring in enough tax revenue to deal with climate change, to deal with our national parks, to look after our native biodiversity. Um, That's, for me, the baseline. That's the first step when you think about what government should do. Then healthcare... Of course the government should provide health care for everyone and access to medication and I don't think New Zealand goes enough goes far enough in that sense I, I think that we should push further I've benefited uh, last year I had several rounds of, of quite intensive surgery and I was really lucky to live in a country with free health care and um, as a young person I cannot imagine how it would have been especially you know my parents uh, my father's on the pension I can't turn to him and fairly ask him to cover me if I had to pay for my surgery. Mm. Um, And so states absolutely should provide adequate health care for everyone that they look after, including if you're going to have tourists come into your country, you should provide tourists with health care. I can't believe that that's an argument when we say, oh, we're setting up our economy to have tourists come to New Zealand, and then people argue that they should have to pay for their own health care. And that's something that Australia does uh, really well. Um, and so that's sort of the next one up. Then education. I, I fully agree that if a, if a parent believes that their child would be better off accessing a Catholic education or a, a Maori education or any of those pathways, then they should have the opportunity to provide their kids with that education, um, whether that means that they pay more or not. Um, I, in terms of the Catholic or, or a religious education experiment, I, I don't necessarily really think that the state should pay for it. Um, and secular education has existed in New Zealand since the 19th century um, with the introduction of our first Education Act. But every student, no matter where you live in New Zealand, should have access to schooling, good quality teachers, and that means well-paid teachers, teachers who have the support staff to deal with the growing workload. And so that's sort of how I view it, is I, I keep going up this, what does the state offer in terms of the environment, education, justice... And it ends up being a lot. The state owes us these things. Um, And if you try and take education out, people who can't afford education won't receive an education um, and therefore become institutionally worse off. If you take healthcare out, people who can't pay for healthcare... And I mean, that's why, if you look at the US, which has no government healthcare, um, except for now it's extraordinarily weak... uh, Midi, what do they call it? Obamacare, really? Medicare, yeah. um, Obamacare insurance packages. Um, the death rate, pretty much everything is higher. The only thing that they do better in than the rest of the world is, uh, cancer research. Um, and, and so again, that's money. It, it's, it's driven, nice. it's driven by money. Yeah. Um, and so you need healthcare to create an equal society where people actually live. Um, and, you will always, always discriminate unless you provide it to to everyone. Uh, In the US, nowhere was that clearer than during the 1980s with the AIDS crisis. Mm. And the the Republican government at the time under Ronald Reagan um, refused to add investment um, to to research and care for AIDS patients um, in the United States. And so everyone who died in the US from AIDS should be on the government's conscience. They, they were essentially allowed to die. They were prevented from the access to healthcare and treatment that they got in. Of course, there was still discrimination involved, but to a better standard than New Zealand and the UK and Australia.
0: And we're seeing that again with monkeypox.
1: And we're, and we're seeing it. And this is where you know monkeypox is such a huge concern. We saw it uh, with coronavirus, it was a focus on the poor, those who simply had no choice but to keep going to work. Um, and so they didn't have the option to, to isolate if they were getting stressed um, about it being in their community. And so your only way to achieve a genuine equality is for the state to provide all of these services in full. Mm.
0: So we talked a bit about education now as well mm-hmm. um, and a bit about the, the equity issues behind it. Um, yeah. So... As a poll student, I was saying a political science student, as I was saying when you came in here, I still don't have a complete grasp Mm -hmm. on what capitalism is. Mm -hmm. And obviously I've learned a bit more now. Um, But the general public, I mean, the fact that most people have to go to university before they start understanding these concepts, which will inform people on on exactly what parties they want to vote for, um, exactly what way they want to lean, how it all works. Um, But majority of the people don't go and get these Mm -hmm. higher educations. A lot of people Mm go start their own lives early they you know they go into these trades um which is amazing and it's good we're starting to see more of this but there is obviously a massive hole in the education system when it comes to civics and economics at a basic level uh so what do you think needs to change there what age do you think people should start learning about civics and uh, economics and to what extent
1: it's a it's a it's a great question i think economics is a really interesting one because i love talking about it and so i think everyone should but <laughs> at the same time you know you're talking when you start getting down to aggregate demand and that sort of stuff whether everyone needs to know it who knows i think everyone should learn the fundamental histi- history of new zealand's institution of government um because that way you appreciate it and understand it You might not agree with it, and certainly I think if you learn a lot about the history of of New Zealand's government, and any government in the world, you you can become quite um, uh, upset with it uh, as a system, and and really see its flaws. Um, I think we do need better quality civics. I do also understand why there is caution, because obviously you're asking teachers to teach politics but in an apolitical fashion and if anyone holds a political opinion which everybody does there's no such thing as being apolitical you will pass that on to your kids and so i understand why there is a cautious approach to it um and so whether we need to start looking at it as part of being an mp's job that they will have debates with a counterpart from another party in every school Things like that. Somehow we make democracy more accessible. And I don't think if we taught everyone how to be an economist, sure, we might come up with a brilliant solution for the housing crisis by tomorrow morning. Um, but unless you've got your biologists, you don't have doctors, and all that sort of stuff. So, this idea that everyone needs to sit through the same social sciences training, I don't necessarily agree with. But if everybody understood the importance of their democratic participation um, and why it's so important that they vote. Mm. Uh, that I certainly agree with. Mm.
0: Right, so let's jump back to the topic of capitalism quickly. Um, so, at its current rate, mm-hmm. are we seeing an increase or a decrease in support for capitalism?
1: That's a really interesting question. I think that groups that have been hard done by by capitalism in the past, so um, students, are one group, are... Uh, the the elderly increasingly which is a really interesting place for change um there there is increasing frustration with it as a system but i think that way what we don't have in the nine in the sort of mid part of the 1900s in particular if you weren't a capitalist you were a communist you know you and, and perhaps that was reflective of the nature of the global situation at the time. Um, but if, if you didn't like capitalism, you wanted its total dismantlement. I think fewer people have the enthusiasm for creating an entirely different ideological view by themselves anymore. Um, and so I would say people have become increasingly impartial to capitalism. It's no longer the, the hot or cold subject. That it's kind it used of just to be. there. It's just there.
0: Yeah. And I guess what? We we've still got I I, I would also see that communism is kind of rising mm. again. Mm-hmm. Um in a different way obviously. Yep. They're not seeing it in the same way that uh, the USSR had. Mm-hmm. Um but we're definitely seeing a rise in it. Yep. Um and I guess a lot more in the youth and a lot more in the hard left, I'd say. Yeah. Um so I, I kind of want to then bring in the idea. We're kind of jumping a little bit off topic here, but I think it, it could be something interesting to look at. We've kind of looked at a bit of how how we see capitalism in the future, whether we see its rise or fall, how much influence government should have in people's lives um, and the economy. So why don't we take a bit of a look now at the idea of anarchy mm-hmm. and whether you think... It is quite obvious now yeah. in, a, in the current state of, of human society that... We could not have an anarchist yeah. structure. We would, it, would be, it would turn into a rampage. Mm-hmm. Do you think it is possible for humans to one day have a system with minimal influence from a government where they rely much more on their self-independence?
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting question. Um, I suppose if you'd said to someone in feudal England that one day the Queen wouldn't make the laws... Uh, they probably wouldn't have believed you um that they would have had as much say over government as anyone else in that country would have seemed strange and, and so i wouldn't rule out anarchism as a or i mean anarcho-communism uh as a possibility i think it, the capitalist structure at the moment is allowing for a pathway to mortalism anarcho-capitalism which is if you fight harder Um, you will be rewarded better Um, and you see that most clearly in in the US context personally I'm I'm not a fan of it and I think it plays into that idea of we don't see politician or public servant as a real career pathway Um, you know we criticise people who become politicians who have never worked any other job in their life but Ultimately, the skill set to be a functioning politician should be something that can be considered a career pathway because you have to learn the people skills of of listening and talking and understanding people. But you also need to have the ability to switch from education to healthcare to environment to taxation in a heartbeat, which is something that's completely unnatural for the human mind. Um, It's completely unnatural, and that's why there are only two offices in this country that we expect it from and that's the leader of the opposition and the prime minister for a person to be expected to have a thought on every issue facing a country um and so i I think personally we should actually be saying that being a politician and being someone who can be entrusted with thinking about such a huge spectrum of issues is something that's more respectable and something that we should admire more and institutionalize more not aim to undermine with this idea of everybody can form their own state in that sort of Lutheran sense.
0: Hmm. Cool. Right, so we'll jo- I've, I've kind of got a question, but I'll come back to it later. I kind of want to go completely off topic mm-hmm. for a second, because yep. um, and I, I kind of want to touch on this with all the RAs, because um, I, I think kind of getting an, uh, an opinion on what it's like to be an RA in Warehouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're we're obviously quite different from other halls. I mean, you look at us, we're we're a house. Mm -hmm. We're not a tall building. We don't have multiple floors um, completely cut off. We are quite open space. Um, So we've kind of got a bit more of a community feel here, I'd say. Mm -hmm. What has your experience been so far with Warehouse?
1: Oh, I I adore it. I think if you, you... you spend time in where and you go to the other halls. And I mean, no disrespect because the other halls create a culture that is distinctly their own. Um, And I I think sometimes there's this resistance to make them all, to try and get them all to be like where, but that's never going to work. Um, But the importance of space and creating culture, where's been here for so long. Um, and so it naturally, when you walk through the doors, you respect it as a building, especially the, especially the main building um, over, over there. But then every change to the space that wears ever had changed its culture. James Hutchinson Wing was built to allow for women to come to Ware. Within a few years, women were starting to make up roughly 50-50 even towards the majority of the, the intake, to the point that now there are quite an overwhelming majority. So that change in space, the addition of James Hutchinson, changed culture. AB for a very long time was if you were openly, uh, if you were openly a rainbow uh, person, a rainbow resident, um, you'd go into AB, and that became a safe haven for queer identity that has now spread into the entirety of Warehouse um, and Tito, again provided this sort of sanctum for people who didn't necessarily want to come to a hall that was raging alcoholism kind of thing. <laughs> that I think you feel the impact now of the where culture's tamed a bit, you know, in all buildings, not just in up All of where has this real focus on you you do study a bit and then you have some fun on the weekends kind of stuff. And so I think it's a real, real place where you can have a lot of respect for the way that place and is, is intertwined with identity. Um, and then in exactly the same way, I, TPV is really close to the university. It's, it's new, it's flash, and so it has this identity of cutting edge, you know, cool um, in a way that weird doesn't. Um, people who study hard, drink hard kind of thing. And then cap down in the hustle and bustle of the city has people who move quicker in that city life. And so it's really interesting to look at and to analyse. I I have a strong personal identity with Ware um, for many reasons. It was the place where I, even though I've been openly gay for many years, it was the place that I sort of grew in confidence um, in that identity. Um, a lot of my political transition uh, change in my political identity has happened here at Ware, including, perhaps even especially, this year. Um... And uh, obviously in my leadership capacity first as Hall President and then now as as an RA. Um, and understanding what is important to me as a leader. And it, it really comes down to I can't lead from an office. I, I, I really struggle with groups that sit down once a week and they plan what they're going to do for an event to or tree planting or whatever even though i fully understand their co-papa and i'm 100 with them this being on the ground this being connected to the people who i am leading and and being able to talk to them and understand their problems and so i've grown a lot in that sense and where will always be really important to me for being the place that i had that growth
0: so there's also obviously been recently a lot of um Issues when it comes to at the start of the year we had the dining hall. Yeah. Um, now we've got the construction. Don't worry, I'm not pouncing yep. hard topic yep. on on here for you. Uh, I'm giving some examples, and I kind of want to then talk about how none of this is any of the staff's fault. Mm-hmm. Not even Michelle's. Mm-hmm. This is all things above her pay grade. Um, she just has to implement it, and she just has to control it. For you guys as staff. Mm-hmm does it take any sort of toll having to bear the, the, the front line reactions of a lot of yeah. these issues that you can't control?
1: I think COVID was really interesting for us at Ware. Um, and I, I, I mean, absolutely no disrespect to the, the RAs and other halls who did an amazing job and we all faced different ch- I mean, to Pune, huge hall, so many cases. there eyes had to work so hard to start on of food delivery. But I think it, at where we had... Obviously, the food was coming out of a marquee. Um, and so whether enough food showed up, um, how the food was packaged, all of that at where was different. Um, there's no elevator in the main building, and you had to... So you had to carry the food up in trays, and then obviously we had to move between different sites. So we would have to go outside, rain or shine, to deliver the, the, the kai to residents. Um and it would be so easy for that sort of thing to be too much. Um, but actually what happened was we were all giving 100% and residents started giving us 150. They really rallied around us. Um, and it continues. Like I'm so grateful for our residents this year because they made it so much easier to have to be going through those challenges, through those work conditions of, we never signed up to run an MIQ facility kind of thing. Um, And yet you guys made it so much easier for us. And then also, as I mean, you said it even when you're talking about, you know, you guys get that the construction was beyond our control. And so you guys support us just as much. And if we tell you where to take your thoughts and where to take your your opinions listen and do it proactively. And so I I think it all goes back to the group of residents we have. That's been what's made this job so amazing and so much better for all of us.
0: Yeah, well, you guys have certainly been doing an amazing job. and I mean, I can't stress it enough in terms of how we all know that it's not the staff's fault. Mm we've we've had our fair share of issues i mean we've heard of problems with with people waking up in their rooms at eight o'clock in the morning and having workers outside their windows Mm -hmm. while they're sleeping half naked in bed we've got windows being sealed shut accidentally by paint um and to know that we've got the right support there for something that's out of our control for something that's out of our head of halls control Mm -hmm. uh it, it, it is really helpful i think we we always all talk about it as well how we kind of scored that In all these other halls, and yet again, no disrespect to them because they're so much bigger, you only really get to know Mm -hmm. your RAs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're not even that. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they've got such a big group of people that they can't even get to know you personally. A lot of us here, most of us here, especially me, is on a personal gotten-to-know basis with every staff member Mm -hmm. in the building, and not just RAs, but the, the senior leadership team, the night managers... I just think we've got such privilege here with that. Um, And I think it's absolutely amazing. And obviously quite sad this week that we've had to farewell Bailey. And even Curtis had to leave us for a month. And, you know, he's still not back. Um, TPV taking a lot of people. Yeah, exactly, Um, exactly. But no, it it has been really good. Uh, So to finish off, Mm -hmm. I want to jump to a really stupid question Mm -hmm. that I think might stump you because you're going to have to think about it. Okay. If the dinosaurs are still alive... Yeah, and they could talk and they could think like we are Yeah, they don't have pea brains in terms Mm. of how they lived do you think they would support capitalism
1: fascinating question I suppose it goes back to that idea of natural capitalism um, which I might have been John Locke I could be wrong though I'm not sure who was the philosopher who came up with it as an idea but inherently because you're an animal you're Ambition is always to act first for self, second for species. Um, and so you, I, I think that this idea of, if there was a way that they could earn more money, live a cushier life, I think any species would strive for for it. There are certainly, I mean, uh, it, it's, what's really interesting is that we're talking about a huge number of different species which all had different traits. Mm. Myasaua, uh, a species of hadrosaurid from the late Cretaceous, I think, North America, Um, they very clear evidence on the fossil record of being a herd-oriented species and nesting-oriented species. Parents would have been bringing back food to the nest for several months to raise the offspring, perhaps, even, even into the years. Um, and the offspring, interestingly, show things like, uh, oh, I can't remember what we call it, but the, you know how humans breed dogs with bigger eyes because we think it's cute kind of thing. Well, myosaur offspring had bigger eyes and smaller heads so that their parents would find them cute and bring them back in the food. Um, Psittacosaurus, there's an, a, what we believe to be an older brother who died to protect all of his siblings in a volcanic eruption and he's huddled up with them. Now, obviously, as, a, as an adult individual, he could have run away and left the young to die, but he stayed with them. in in the face of of danger. And so I I think that when you talk about all of these brains working together, you would have the same structure and relationship with authority and with with greed and capital that we do as, as human beings. It's what happens when more than one brain thinks about something. Does that answer the
0: question? Yeah, so dinosaurs are capitalists.
1: Dinosaurs are political. (laughs) we wouldn't go as far as to say dinosaurs are capitalists
0: (laughs) (laughs) dinosaurs are political you guys heard it here first (laughs) right so thank you so much for coming on today Michael it's been a pleasure to have you Um, I think next week we're going to be talking to Basil talking about the ancient mouldy world so uh, look forward to that guys Uh, thank you so much for listening in and we'll see you guys next week